And as we wake up this morning, uh, uh, the market futures appear to be in the green. Everything looking good there. We got a jobs openings. You know how upside down this world is when a disappointing report for job openings is good news in the fight against inflation. <laughs> but that's the good news. Um, that it's, it's the kind of cooling off. And it is the one thing the Fed really looks closely at. So something trending there in the right direction. And Apple up 48%. Uh, as we wake up this morning on the year, and they closed yesterday above $3 trillion Wow! in market value, their market cap. Kind of crazy. Uh, so uh, just a couple business nuggets there to, to start your day. And things are going to get a little more, I guess, busy on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays around the Tech Center and around the Rensen as uh, General Motors is now hardening its stance. You know, they, they first told everybody you got to be back to work at the beginning of this year, mm-hmm. and then they kind of did the hybrid thing and said, well, we're going to allow you to be flexible. Well, now you got to be there Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and if you're in some specific jobs, you're going to have to be there more often. And uh, Mary Barra sending the message that uh, hybrid employees must be in for those three days. I don't think it's going to affect us, given our commute schedules. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> we miss the traffic. That's right. But we will be looking at it coming the other way mm-hmm. uh, as as uh, as we leave. So uh, for those of you out there that are going to be commuting around the, the tech center, the Rensen, it is going to get a little bit busier. It'll be interesting to see if, if she gets buy-in from all of those people who have been more than comfortable with this flexible work schedule. And we've seen at the federal government... Good God Almighty! Oh, yeah. Got all that dog, kind of emptiness. You know, you there. can fire a cannon, <laughs> and uh, and it appear and the Biden administration they're talking about privately saying, "What do we do?" Half of the cabinet level departments, I have fifty percent back to work. So uh, a lot of stuff happening there. On our on our nation's universities, uh, we saw some of the most prominent members of leadership called before Congress yesterday. Yes, guy Harvard. UPenn, MIT faced questions from Congress Tuesday about their responses to alleged incidents of anti-Semitism on their campuses. For several hours, Harvard President Claudine Gay, Penn President Liz McGill, and MIT President Sally Kornbluth faced questions about their disciplinary actions towards students regarding those acts of anti-Semitism and how their school's hiring practices ensure the faculty represent diverse viewpoints. In a testy exchange, Republican Representative Elise Stefanik of New York asked Gay if Harvard would take disciplinary action against students uh, who say things like from the river to the sea. Calling for intifada on her campus. Can you but not say here that it is also, against the code of conduct at Harvard? We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. It's when that speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies. So she's clearly weighing free speech with the safety of students. Now, all presidents say they've seen the rise in anti-Semitism, but also brought up Islamophobia. In an interview with UPenn student newspaper on that NBC broadcast, the students are saying that discord is not allowed anymore. There should at least be a space for discussion about viewpoints and that they feel is gone. No, and it's a hard line to say, okay, to, to have tolerance for political expression, saying we believe there should be a ceasefire. We believe that, uh, that there could be violations of international law here. Mm-hmm. And then saying from the river to the sea. Right, right. You're tolerating hate speech, but are, and the other thing is, are they uh, even-handed in the way they uh, confront hate speech? 
and how no. they what they term hate speech. I mean, they they apply it to those. If you're if you're against affirmative action, there are those who would say, "Well, you're a racist and you're engaging in hate speech." Mm-hmm. So you know, is this I, evenly I don't know, applied? Right? How much was decided? It was just sort of a discussion, and people are still agreeing or disagreeing on their same viewpoints. Well, the things on the University of Michigan campus have become just outright hostile over these two resolutions that we're on, Uh, one demanding disinvestment. Um, The other, I I believe, was a show of support for Israel. Um, You had had two uh, students that were uh, outed fraudulently in social media for supposedly hacking email lists. Mm I mean, and, and threats of violence against them. So as a result, the University of Michigan president uh, yesterday said they're just going to scrap the votes on these resolutions. It's become far too divisive. Uh, Santa Ono saying, after great thought and input, we are going to disallow any future votes on these two controversial and divisive resolutions. Uh, they have done more to stoke fear, anger, and animosity in our campuses than they would ever accomplish as recommendations to the university. Um, it's a tough time. But then there was a protest because the vote didn't happen. Exactly. Small, but... Yeah. It, 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 exactly. But yeah, how do you balance speech? And at what point does legitimate criticism of Israel become anti-Semitic? That's the other th- thing that... Right. Is, is you're is yeah. your discussing these policies. We're, we're going to be... Ora Hirsch-Peskovitz, the, the president of Oakland University, had a great op-ed on this. Very thoughtful. The university presidents need to be thought leaders on this issue. And... We'll talk about how that might manifest itself. In the meantime, um, we, we remember this attack at a Target where a woman yeah. survived the attack and then her attacker went on to kill somebody. That's right. She's showing some real courage here. This is she chilling really, testimony. She was in uh, court yesterday to face her attacker. Because I was dying, I stared into his eyes because I wanted to make sure that he would never forget my face, and I hope it haunts him. That's Amanda Pasonic, uh, who almost became an assault victim when she was attacked in the Target parking lot on Coolidge Highway in Maple Road. That was back in July. She faced her attacker, Andrew Hall, yesterday in Oakland County Circuit Court before his sentencing on the attack. This man stalked Target parking lot for 40 minutes until he thought he found a small, weak woman for him to control. But as he now knows, I am strong and I am a fighter. On that day, he ripped open my door as I was trying to shut it, told me to be quiet, placed a gun to my head, and demanded that I get in my back seat. Now, a bystander saw what was happening, ran towards them, and that caused Hall to flee. But Detroit police say just days later, he stabbed and murdered a 40-year-old. Her name was Lisa Moffitt, and that happened in Detroit. Police later arrested Hall in Dearborn, and as of uh, for yesterday, for the target attack, he was sentenced to 27 to 40 years in prison. Well, there are so many lessons here. If you are in this position as a woman, you fight back. Don't yes. get in the back seat. And scream like hell. And exactly. good for that bystander yes. who tried to help and actually did help because it scared the attacker. It scared, away. and and she's a she's a strong lady. And she said, "I wanted to to get in court. I wanted to say this because you know, for other potential victims who are out there, this is what you do. You you don't give up. You you fight back. Bless her mm-hmm. for having the courage to testify." Um, Yesterday, Governor Gretchen Whitmer says, look, we want to be the EV battery capital. We want to be the EV capital and the the mobility capital. As a result, we've got to be the customer. So she is putting in her own EV mandate. And it is that light-duty vehicles, think cars, SUVs, they will be fully electric by the year 2033. 
They have three EVs in the (laughs) uh, 8,000-unit fleet in the state of Michigan, Um, and she wants them to be all EVs within 10 years. Uh, The heavier-duty stuff uh, will have 17 years till 2040. 2040. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the question becomes, we we talked to Consumer Reports yesterday. Are you condemning the state of Michigan to take on vehicles that aren't ready for prime time yet if they have a rate of 79% more problems? What do you do for the folks in the U.P.? who are covering maybe four hours of driving every day just to get to the bridge. Mm-hmm. Those state workers have huge ranges to cover. Do well, they there better be them? infrastructure and charging Exactly. For That's them. the thing. Right. But from an inf- efficiency standpoint, do you want that state worker um, st- standing by the road maybe twice a day to, to spend a half hour, 45 minutes charging up a vehicle? If you can't find, you know, the level whatever charger that it needs yeah. to speed it up. I think it's I think it makes perfect sense that she's saying to the companies, hey, if you come to our state, we're going to be one of your best customers. I think that's fine. But, boy, you might want to wait till Gen 2 or Gen 3 of these vehicles before you uh, start paying tax using taxpayer money well, to Sean, buy them. Sean Fain was happy about it. He said we encourage the state to purchase union made EVs for all state vehicles, giving America's auto workers their fair share of this historic moment for the American auto industry. Which which is great, but are they going to be competitive? Are they going to be ready? Absolutely. Are they going to be more expensive because they're union made? So is it a little bit like the um you know the you know the prevailing wage issue. And if we do we get the rebates uh because there are a lot of uh foreign made uh well and that's <laughs> the other thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, is the state eligible for that seventy five hundred dollar right. credit? Exactly. Um that's yeah, and that is going to be in question as well. I got a feeling, you know, this is to some degree virtue signaling for the folks on her left. It's all good. Uh, but she's going to be gone for most of this. I mean, she's, <laughs> right. she's gone in 2026. So she won't have to be here to face the music from the appropriations committees about the purchase of these vehicles that may or may not be the wisest choice for the consumer, in this case, the state of Michigan. Uh, by the way, we, we're going to get to discussions about the NCAA and much more when we come back. A nuclear power company, not just trying to reopen a plant, which is unprecedented in and of itself. They want to add two new reactors in the state of Michigan. What has changed that would allow adoption of that and embracing that? We will talk to the representative behind it next on JR Morning. I was there 40 years ago when Consumers Power said, we give the regulatory obstacles, the political nonsense, uh, the extreme expense, the endless delays, And they pulled the plug on the planned nuclear plant for Midland, Michigan. And since then, no one, no utility, no entity has tried to build a new nuclear plant here in the state of Michigan and very few elsewhere. Well, that could change. As news broke yesterday, that not only does the company that owned the Palisades plant over on the southwest side of the state want to reopen uh, to decommission the decommissioning, but they also want to perhaps add two new reactors. What would that mean for the nuclear industry and for the state of Michigan and its quest for clean power? Uh, Joey Andrews is the state representative representing the Michigan's 38th district in St. Joseph. He is a Democrat, and he joins us live this morning uh, to talk about jobs and what's changed, why the timing is so right. Uh, representative Andrews, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So why why is the timing right for this? Is is you have uh, war gamed this, and you've talked to the folks at Holtec. Why do they think that this will be accepted, and that a lot of those obstacles won't be there forty years hence? 
you know, I think we've seen sort of this shift over the last couple of years, and even in the last, you know, couple of years since the decommissioning on public perception around nuclear energy. Um, as, you know, climate change has gotten worse and we're seeing the impacts of that and we're trying to figure out how to produce enough clean energy to, you know, power our lifestyles, uh, it's, it's pretty hard to get there without some large source of generation and nuclear is the best at that. And, you know, when the, the Palisades plant was decommissioned, it was a huge blow to the industry and to a lot of climate advocates who, you know, see that nuclear is the way we get rid of coal plants and gas plants and that sort of thing. So I, I think that public perception has shifted uh, in a pretty big way and the technology uh, for these small modular reactors has really started to progress um, rapidly in recent years. So I, I think it's just sort of, uh, you know, an, an idea whose time has uh, come again uh, in a lot of ways. And Representative, I know you say the decision to put $150 million in state funding toward reopening facility is paying even greater dividends. Explain. Yeah, um, so we're, you know, we put this $150 million in the budget towards the reopening the plant. Um, the, the plant, the owners themselves are putting nearly a billion dollars into the reopening as well. So uh, we're not the only people ponying up on this, but we're looking at when the plant is repowered, uh, over five to 600 uh, six-figure jobs in the local community, um, plus another 12 to 1,500 jobs when they do the refueling outages. So a huge, huge job creator uh, for the investment. And the tax revenue that the plant generates uh, is irreplaceable for the school, the community college, the local township, which is quite small and rural otherwise. Um, as well as the county and uh, Van Buren County where it's situated is um, a relatively poor county. So the tax base that the plant represents for them is uh, is huge deal. Uh, and it's it's going to generate much more um, in terms of the jobs and the tax revenue than, than we're putting into it. This would be the first in the nation small modular reactor generating plant or SMR, and it's built as the next generation of nuclear. Can you explain in layman's terms how that works? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the traditional reactors that we're used to seeing, um, like what Palisades, you know, is today, um, or like Cook, uh, the Cook plant further south of my district is, are these, you know, sort of gigantic power plants with usually, you know, a thousand or more megawatts of generation. Um, they take, you know, 10 plus years to build, uh, you know, the, the things that everybody's used to thinking of. Uh, the SMRs, the small modular reactors, are basically compact reactors. In the case of the ones that Holtec's looking at here, they're like 300 megawatts, sometimes smaller than that. Uh, and the idea is that uh, you can build these things on an assembly line, essentially, in a factory, so you don't have to build them on site, so it reduces the cost pretty dramatically, um, as well as the time to build. Uh, they're also, because they're more compact, uh, they're safer. Um, not that nuclear plants aren't already, but um, there's virtually no meltdown risk when you're working at the scale of small modular reactors. Um, they burn fuel significantly longer than old reactors do, so the waste byproduct is usually less. Uh, so it's just a number of benefits, and um, it's it's sort of like the next evolution in the technology. Um, as the industry is looking at how can you deploy uh, nuclear energy in a you know a more wide and efficient way. But speak to the, the perception problem here. Uh, we had Three Mile Island in 79, Chernobyl in 86, Fukushima, um, and, and going back to Fermi 1, uh, for heaven's sakes. How do you get past the, 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 the perception of a lack of safety? 
especially that we have seen kind of a rebirth of this whole not in my backyard idea uh, with a number of plants of, 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 I mean, even some benign manufacturing plants that people, you know, if they're opposed to them, will manufacture fear. You know, there's there's always going to be people like that um, who, you know, they, they don't want something near them. Um, and at power plants, I think, always have always kind of been that way. Uh, I, will, I will say over here at um, the covert plant, uh, the, the community has been really supportive of the repowering. And, uh, you know, they're excited about the prospect of uh, expanding the plant, too. They understand uh, what it means in terms of jobs and investment. But um, I think, you know, when you look at the, the some of the old, you know, Three Mile Island type events, you're talking about an old technology. We've mm-hmm. we've updated safety standards well beyond that. Um, and even uh, with Fukushima, when I did a recent tour of the uh, Cook plant here, they have a whole offsite facility that they call their um, their Fukushima readiness center, basically. And the idea is that in the event of uh, a disaster similar uh, to a Fukushima, whether it's an earthquake or, you know, a, a meteor impact, right? It's just something crazy out of the ordinary that disables the coolant system. They have this whole offsite facility where they keep um, heavy equipment fully fueled, uh, fully maintained. They, they check them, you know, regularly to make sure they're working so that they can disaster response, clear any wreckage out of the way, um, which was really the issue at Fukushima is that nobody right. could get to the plant. So I, I think I encourage everybody to try and get a tour of, uh, of one of these facilities. We have a couple in Michigan that are, you know, accessible. Uh, and I, I think once you do, y- your perception on how safe these things are really will change. I mean, they, okay. th- when, they do these, when they do these outages, they, they like, go down to the, um, the nuts and bolts in terms of, like, you know, making oh. sure everything is safe and ready. Yeah, I, I've, I, was, I was at the, uh, the Fermi, too, when they had a scram event. And it was a very minor thing, but they shut it down instantly. Joey Andrews, we thank you for uh, your, your well of knowledge on this. It's a great proof of... I, I want to tell you what I'm getting you guys for Christmas. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm going to get each of you a hard hat. Okay. Because when I learned that there's 170 million pieces of space junk up there, and <laughs> I, I want to make sure you're protected when it rains down at speeds of 17,000 miles per hour. Wow. Okay. I want to make sure. Thank you. That you guys are. We're all covered. I appreciate that. And and I think we should wear them in here because it will pass right through them. Oh yeah. <laughs> it can. Right. It yes. can. But what's interesting about this is space junk is a real threat uh, to to satellites, to communications, to to a lot of things. But 99% of it goes undetected until now. University of Michigan researchers have a new system that could detect, target, and document where small objects are. It was uh, really quite an interesting paper that dropped yesterday. For my friends out in Ann Arbor, we welcome in Motaba Akaben Topti. He's the assistant research scientist in the Department of Climate and Space Sciences and Engineering at the University of Michigan. Professor, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So just give us a sense of how, I said 170 million, I think that's the correct number, but just how much stuff is up there that could be threatening and, and why there's so much concern about this. Yeah, um, so just just to give you a sense of how much debris is out, um, just remember that since the 60s and 70s, we've had significant presence in space. Um, and oftentimes when we send something to space, um, and NASA does it and many other um, governments do it, but also now many 
um, commercial partners um, around the world do it as well. We've had these these satellites to to go to orbit, and if you plan it well, many of them are going to deorbit. Um, and that what that means is that um, if you send a satellite up to 400 um, miles above ground, then there's enough atmosphere that over time that just deorbits and just burns in the atmosphere. But there are also many cases where uh, these aging satellites in space are practically just breaking down over time because, you know, they're exposed to sunlight uh, that, that is really, for example, the paint chip off of a satellite is just coming off and we're just completely unaware of how many of those satellites are, how many of, and those are man-made objects and, and there are plenty of um, natural objects as well. So right now, um, this is, these are all estimates. Um, just like you said, we, we think that there is up to, you know, um, hundreds of millions of debris out um, in space. But the Air Force, um, U.S. Air, Air Force, which is the, the most powerful detection of debris in space, um, can only detect objects that are larger and track them that are larger than a softball. So four inches and, and higher. Um, and, and that's only 1%. Of, of the total debris in space. And Professor, you know, you were talking about objects large, larger than the softball that, that are uh, trackable, but I'm looking at a picture here of a piece of space junk that punched a hole into the hull of NASA's Solar Max spacecraft. I mean, even a, a very small piece going at 22,000 miles an hour can, can really do a lot of damage. Yes, so that's that's another that's another big thing. Um, yeah, every object in space, um, on on average, has a speed around twenty thousand miles per hour. So even a softball hitting you is going to feel like hitting a bus. So now now imagine if you're a very you know um, a small satellite or or even a large satellite, mm -hmm. and and something at that speed hits you. Um, it's going to oftentimes be um, lethal to the to the spacecraft, let alone you know astronauts that that are present in space. Um, so that's that's why it's really important to Department of Defense, um, and and again these are just U.S. based um, organizations, but Department of Defense and now um, um, even the Director of National Intelligence that that are caring about this because we're starting to have more presence in space. Uh, especially commercial activities, and these can be mission-ending. Okay, Professor, so you guys figured out how to track the really small pieces. Now what happens? Yeah, so um, we, we're still far from exactly um, knowing how many space debris there are, and our method, which practically looks at um, two small, small space debris hitting each other, um, and once they hit, hit each other at speeds of up to um, 20,000 miles per hour, they start to create these pulses, electromagnetic pulse, we call it, which is very similar to when you're um, taking, uh, putting on a blanket in the dark and it, it sparks. That's hmm. what I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. So when the two objects collide, they generate a very strong electromagnetic pulse. Um, and that is so strong that we can detect it from ground. And we're talking about, you know, nearly 
um, 40,000 miles away, we, we can we we're, we have shown theoretically that that we are able to detect that signal. And so when these two objects collide, they generate that um, signal because the the collision creates this very strong um, expansion of the two objects into millions of fragments. So not only so now two um, small debris now have created millions of additional debris because the two have collided. And this could be objects as small as, you know, millimeter sized um, objects, or there are many um, accidents in space too, where um, retired satellites hit existing operating satellites and create a lot of debris. So now that you can identify it, can you prevent those kinds of collisions and that kind of damage and I mean, does it also open open the door to someday having space junk recyclers or retrievers going up there to kind of clean up this mess? Yes, you're you're exactly on track. Um, so the the two are exactly what the purpose of this whole project is. Number one is that um, as as we continue to um, further our involvement in in space, one of the main things is to one know where exactly every debris is because there are maneuvers that you simply just communicate with the satellite and let them know that, hey, get, it, get out of the way. Because not every satellite is going to have the capability to you know, smack Maneuver. the yeah. incoming debris. The other aspect, um, just like you mentioned, is also make, if you know where the debris are, then you can start to um, create satellites that th- their only purpose is to go and remove the debris or at least send the um, debris to a different orbit so that um, you can you can operate safely. So yeah. just just for reference, there is already um, out when you go um, 36,000 miles from Earth. There's this orbit where you would have the same speed as the Earth rotates, so that you can pretty much park your satellite there. And spy satellites and communication satellites often do this. So you can sit on a very specific part of Earth and just can do measurements. Um, okay. So you, you can you can do that. So because of the same velocity, you don't have to burn much fuel, and everyone really likes this orbit, and it's very stable. So just outside of that orbit, there's this thing called geosynchronous orbit, or we call it graveyard orbit. So all of the satellites that go to that orbit, when they are ready to retire, they have to have just enough fuel to just go few few hundred miles over and just park there and retire. The That's idea that you have a retirement home for dead satellites <laughs> is, is 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 fascinating. Um, we thank you for this. I, I mean, the the idea that you can spot things that are one millimeter in diameter from thousands of miles away is is fascinating and. Uh, uh, Professor Thanks for Ackerman. your research. Yeah, yes. Tofty, I, I will think of you every time I sheet sparks. I will, I, I will be reminded <laughs> that you guys are identifying critical stuff out there. That's a novel way. Thank you for your time, and thanks for protecting us. Thank you very much for having me, and, and have a good day. You too. And uh, wow. I, I wonder who the, the space junk people of the future will be, because there may be money in retrieving a lot of that yeah. stuff. Uh, I just think scientists and science and smart people for doing some things you've never even thought of. You never would have thought of that. (laughs) No. Uh, When we come back, the president of Oakland University on trying to deliver safety, but also freedom of speech 
and political speech on college campuses. The fine line that leaders have to walk. She's calling on them to show more leadership. We'll speak with her next on JR Morning at 649. These are troubling times on our nation's college campuses. And as leaders try to exercise tolerance, but also to protect the campus community from hate speech and insightful speech or inciting speech, uh, this was really brought into clear focus in the op-ed page of the Detroit News as uh, uh, one of our fine leaders in higher education, Dr. Ora Hirsch-Peskovitz, the president of Oakland University, spoke her mind on this, and she joins us live this morning. Dr. Peskovitz, president, good morning. Good morning. I'm delighted to be here with you. The sub-headline on this, it's called A Matter of Principle, and you say the urgency for university presidents to speak out on moral issues. Have they done that to the degree that you think they should have, or is there a deficiency there? Are you calling it out? Well, I think that many university presidents have done that, and some have not. And um, I think that some have, uh, but maybe not in a timely fashion. So there's a variety of responses, and uh, many of them have really done a very good job, in my opinion. But uh, some, I think, were a little bit late to the game, and I think that partly contributed to some of the tension on some of our campuses. Dr. Peskovich, um, looking at your op-ed and the guiding principles that you that you think they should go by, that, that you go by, one of yeah, them... Yeah, those it, are what I go by. I just want to clarify, you know, I okay. think that maybe not everybody has to abide by right. what I go by. So one of them is distinguish between free speech and unlawful harassment. How do you do that? Well, that is really challenging, and as you might be aware, uh, three prominent presidents from uh, elite universities uh, were in front of a congressional hearing yesterday, and this was really uh, the bulk of what they were facing um, before the grilling that they had yesterday. It's very, very challenging because, as you know, uh, free speech does include um, hate speech, and we, especially at public universities, do have to permit even speech that we don't like. Uh, but there is a blurry boundary between uh, un- hate speech, which is oftentimes very offensive, but when it devolves into uh, speech that then turns into violence and the unlawful harassment of either students or faculty or staff or anyone, then um, it becomes impermissible. And then we, as the leaders of our public universities, have the right and the obligation to prevent it and to stop it. But it is, as I said, a very blurry boundary and one that is very, very difficult at times to manage. And that's really been uh, a part of the um, challenge on university campuses during these past seven weeks. So one of the things that I've been suggesting is that we have to counter this hate speech with a combination of more speech and mostly with education. Uh, President Peskovich, you wrote this. I, I love it. It's called A Matter of Principle, and you give four principles, and there are so many good points here. You said, in your opinion, remaining quiet is tantamount to moral cowardice, and presidents and universities should come out and make statements. 
Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, our universities are places for myriad opinions and discussion and debate and all kinds of opinions um, should be uh, really, really promoted on our campuses. And that is the purpose of universities. But there are certain things that the leadership should really come out and state at a higher level above all of that discussion. And that really is where I believe the role of the president is. And that's to address morality, not to discuss history, not to discuss politics, but to address clear moral principles. Yeah, because silence is a form of speech. It's if you're not condemning, you are to a degree condoning. And that's, I, I think, a really important point to make. Um, in, in terms of, of finding that blurry line, you say uh, there's, we have to have a willingness to allow for what might be construed as offensive speech, but not unlawful harassment. So, for instance, how do we put this into into work with this chant that we have so frequently heard from the river to the sea? Palestine must be free. I know you take that quite personally as a Jewish American. Yes, uh, and I try to use that as just one example um, because it is a slogan, and I use that in in the op-ed as as an example of speech which is permissible. And in fact, you could think of many other examples of hate speech which we and public universities must permit. But I think it's important to educate people who use speech that is hateful and offensive. So I try to use that as an example of something that is very, very hateful to me as a Jewish American, because I believe that many of the people who use that slogan don't really know what it fully means. They may not understand that what that means when I hear it is not only the destruction of the state of Israel, but actually destruction of all Jews. So if someone says that in my presence, what it means to me is actually genocide of all Jews. And one of the reasons why I think it's important to educate is that I would guarantee that a significant majority of our students who in their protests use that slogan actually don't fully understand its meaning. Now I would say that there are many leaders who do know its meaning, but many do not understand its meaning. And therefore, I think it's important to educate individuals who use the slogan to fully understand just how offensive it is to me. Because I would, I would really posit that many of those individuals, if they knew that they were saying it to me and that I understood it as meaning that they, they wanted my death, I think they would think twice right. about it too. And I think the idea of fighting hate speech and harassing speech with more speech mm-hmm. and more context is is the politics of addition rather than just subtra- uh, subtraction and, and censoring and silencing. And I think it's such a wise position you have taken on this, understanding that it that requires moral courage, too, because there's a lot of people that don't want to hear context mm-hmm. or hear the other side. Uh, President Peskowitz, we, we appreciate your leadership on this. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on with you and having an opportunity to further explain why I take these four positions that I take. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday. Going to get you over the hump. We get a little bit of a day off tomorrow. We're still going to be working, but uh, not the full show. And that's because the 
Uh, the Say Detroit Radiothon will be coming. Mitch is uh, is going to have his annual Radiothon tomorrow. We're going to have him on a little bit later to talk about why this is uh, so important. But we look forward to that. And we'll be on with him tomorrow morning at this time, live from Somerset Collection, which will be uh, a lot of fun. Uh, it is one of the most disturbing child abuse cases we've seen in a long time. And this comes out of Clinton County and uh, the state attorney general, state officials charging the parents in this case, actually two couples uh, that may have... Uh, adopted nearly 30 children, and they're accused of abusing some of them. And they were allowed, according to state officials and the attorney general, to cover up the abuse because they homeschooled these children. So they didn't come into contact with adults outside of the home who may have seen the warning signs of abuse. And are mandatory reporters. Exactly. As teachers, they are mandatory reporters. And so the attorney general now, along with uh, a Democratic state lawmaker who has a law enforcement background, Matt Colazar, a guy that we've engaged with before, a very thoughtful uh, lawmaker, uh, said it's time for us to at least document how many kids are in homeschooling and have them to to some degree register so we know where they are. But that's the preamble to opening up regulation of those children or oversight of those children. And they admit the vast majority of homeschooling parents are doing the right thing and doing a good job, but we've seen these horrific cases, and they document at least three of them in the free press and say, you know, whether it's failing them as teachers or abusing them, we need to do a better job of, of looking into this. If but, it prevents children from being abused, what is the problem? Well, the problem is from the homeschooling the homeschooling the advocates were saying, look, so, yeah. we don't want indoctrination of our children. We don't want to engage in the K through 12 uh, system as it, it is, mm-hmm. especially from yeah. a religious standpoint. Right. So they see this as a religious rights issue and other things. Sure. And they say, we now have the government that is going to try to tell us how to educate our children, which is exactly what we were trying to get away from in the first place. Well, simply registering. Is yeah. that what they're proposing? What's right. the problem with that? They'll say that that's the camel's nose under the tent, because why register unless you're going to mandate something? What they may be mandating, and this was proposed back in 2015, is that a child twice a year that is in homeschooling has to have a visit with an outside adult that will be, you know, be able to testify to their well-being, could be a pediatrician, could be any any number of. of to me, that's areas. not a problem. Yeah, issue for with me. that, yeah, it, you know, to to make to check on the child to make sure the child is is okay. If it's all about the children and making sure they're safe, uh, I don't have an issue with that. But it's like you're saying else, it's a ulti- it's, a, it's about the ulterior exe- motive. It's about the execution, and I think that's the fear is that it's going to be an ulterior motive that well, then you're going to tell us what our uh, academic program has to be as a homeschool parent. And there are there have been people that have brought actions against other family members who say, look, the, the child is nine years old and he's being homeschooled by mom and he can't read. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you defend right. those the, the, the rights of those children uh, and the obligation under the law to educate that child? It's there are mandated, great areas everywhere. It. But if it, it protects children, I err on that side. And that's, and, and, and that's the question. And that's basically what Matt Colazar is saying. He's saying at the very least, at least we know where these children are, and then we can maybe build a very flexible, very tolerant Safety infrastructure yeah. to, 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 to make sure that those Because one person, one safe. child hurt is one too many. Ex- right. I ex- agree, Lloyd. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
And he says, this isn't designed to prevent homeschooling. And uh, we're going to reach out to Matt. He's a very accessible guy. And I, I've Clearly really Clearly it's a talker. So. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. And, and so uh, that's a big thing in the pre-press today. You'll want to check it out. And uh, But A.G. Nestle. And then, you know. And the other thing is, this is coming from two Democrats, so there's going to be an instant political reaction as well, saying, well, what's the artillery or motive there? Um, when it comes to LGBTQ and, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the other... You know, I mean, how does about. that even come into it? If you're just sending a pediatrician to check on the well-being of a child, to me, that's not part of it. Or saying yeah. you need to take... Well, they're going to say, well, who's going to be the, the pediatrician? And are they going to have an ulterior <sighs> motive? Yeah. And, that, you know, so it, 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 again, it gets into this fear of government... Intrusion. Well, I think the way the law is going to be written, the way they write it, it's going to have to be, you know, it can't be really broad. It needs to be pretty narrow. There's going to be a, a, a real bloodbath over this. Yeah. Let's get um, him on and talk about it. Matt Colazar. <laughs> that's it. I, I'm, I'm going to jump Nick Roddy's job right here. We're inviting you on. Hopefully you'll, somebody will you'll nudge you with an elbow saying, hey, Guy and Jamie and Lloyd were talking about you. Um, meantime, in the in the law enforcement this we have this horrible abuse case. Uh, we've got deep, deep concern today about Paul Whalen. There was an attempt. We Evan Gershkovitz, yeah. two hundred fifty days in captivity. Yeah, we, we made a pretty good offer. Yeah, the Biden administration has made a new and significant offer aimed at securing the release of American detainees Paul Whalen and Evan Gershkovitz. But the State Department said Russia has rejected the offer. Spokesman Matthew Miller didn't reveal the details of the offer nor why Russia had turned it down, but the revelation of the proposal was a fresh indication that Washington is continuing to try to negotiate with Moscow to get both of those men home. In the months since his arrest, Mr. Gershevich has been held in Moscow's uh, Leftovo prison, a notorious detention center run by the KGB, Whalen being uh, held in uh, Mordovia. That's an area far south of Moscow known for its harsh conditions. He was attacked. Yes, in his prison camps and was attacked. Yes, absolutely. So I love the fact that the Biden administration is tying these two guys together because Evan is a much more high-profile individual. He's got Fox News. He's got uh, the Wall Street Street Journal Journal. uh, advocating for him. But they're saying, no, Paul, this is going to be a package deal we're going to get both of them out. yeah and and that's something i know that is a, a measure of comfort to paul's family uh not a good opener for michigan state last night in the big 10 no not at all so they're zero and one in the big 10 they lost to wisconsin 70 to 57 they fell behind by 11 points at halftime then cut the lead to three in the second half so there was hope but number 23 wisconsin used a 9-0 run to pull away and so we're going to have Tom Izzo on. He's not going to be happy. <laughs> he's the, no, he's coming up on Friday. And, and but they, again, every time I looked up, and by the way, it was on Peacock. For goodness sakes, this new streaming thing is going to drive people crazy. It's, it's hard to find the sports you want well, to watch. you were saying the Red Wings were on ESPN+. Red Wings Plus. were on EPS, ESPN+. Plus. Yeah. I, we, I was at my buddy's house. We, yeah, he didn't have his Roku up and running. So it's like, okay, how do we find our sports tonight? And, and that's going to be the new... That's it's the, the new, new thing for new sure, thing. but I can report Michigan State 0-1 now in the Big Ten. 0-1 on the Big Ten, and every time I looked up, the red guys were shooting much better than the green guys. Uh, yes, the, the Red Wings won. They beat Buffalo 5-3, to and the next time the red winged wheelers play, we should see Patrick Kane, which should be yeah. awesome. Right. And they're 7-2-2 two, two, uh, over the last 11. So is that so tomorrow? They are on a run. Will he play tomorrow? I believe Thursday. Thursday, yeah. 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 Was, was the idea. Yeah. Okay. Time for WJR's Business Beat. Let's uh, check in with Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation, to take a look at the startup community here on WJR. Hi there, Jeff. Good morning, Guy. 
It's that time of year. Many businesses looking forward to 2024 and cooking up their strategic plans, including their marketing plans, of course. And when businesses think of their alignment to hot demographic categories they need to be paying attention to, no doubt many may turn their focus to Gen Z and for good reason. But a less obvious demographic, but with lots of spending power, is one that must be considered as well. This demographic, it's the over 50s, an amalgamation of three generations, Gen X, baby boomers, and the silent generation as they're known. And today they are digital savvy, are active on social media, consume content on desktop and mobile, and even follow influencers that target them. And they're spending, spending on everything from automotive to technology to household appliances. They make up a whopping 35% of the population and 53% of all consumer spend. The AARP reports that over 50s are spending $8.3 trillion a year, a sum expected to increase to $13 trillion by 2030. And that spending power needs to be embraced with products and services as well as advertising that caters specifically to them. So if you're working on your 2024 marketing plan, don't forget to target and engage the over 50s. Just remember, consumers in this demographic are savvy, brand loyal, perhaps even a bit set in their ways, and tend to be smarter shoppers in general. So be prepared to engage them accordingly. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, and that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. So yesterday we broke the news uh, out of the Wall Street Journal, an excuse, exclusive that they had at CVS, which is such a powerful presence uh, in, in the, the, the medical pharmacy industry here, uh, was going to kind of scrap the way that they price drugs and embrace something that Mark Cuban was doing with his online pharmacy, this cost plus model. The question being, will it finally deliver folks like you and me uh, the kind of price relief that we have been seeking for so long. Mark Fendrick is a University of Michigan professor in the Department of Internal Medicine and Department of Health Management and Policy. He is both a, an MD and an economist and uh, helps us with these very complicated issues. Mark, good morning. Happy to be here. The Lions in first, Michigan number one team in the country, and a step toward uh, drug price transparency. How better we can you get? Wow. There, you, there, there you go. Do you want to talk about those other things first? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a trifecta go yeah. blue morning. Um, Mark, as you look at this, and I want you to explain cost plus in a moment, but let's cut to the chase. Do you think this will save consumers money? Right. You always know I care. Americans don't care about health care costs. They care about what it costs them. So I think this step is a very important one forward, but I don't want to get overly excited. There will be some drug prices at the counter for patients that will actually go down under this model. But I don't want to say that there won't be a few that will actually go up. But I think the key takeaway now is we talked about previously, Guy, that some people actually paid out of pocket more then the actual pharmacy was re reimbursed. And uh, I believe that idea will finally go away and that overpayment for generic drugs in particular Amen. is likely to diminish a great deal. So do you think that CVS was kind of seeing that the, the advantages of that secret pricing model was starting to cave in? Yeah, great, great question. You know, the, the uh, writing is on the wall. These pharmacy benefit managers <clears throat> or PBMs were starting to get seriously scrutinized by the industry and Congress. Mm -hmm. And as Guy mentioned, uh, the success of our, our friend Mark Cuban's 
model has really resonated across the country. So I think that uh, they tried to be where the puck's going to be as opposed to where the puck is in terms of seeing the writing on the wall. So can you explain how cost vantage will work at CVS? Yeah, uh, I don't know how many weeks, Jamie, you have for me. <laughs> can but, you uh, put it I, in I, layman's terms? <laughs> I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to uh, stay within my time here. So you probably know, and we've talked about this, that pharmacies uh, never were reimbursed predictably on the cost of the drugs they were buying because they were tied to this kind of black box formula that were tied to volume and rebates and a whole bunch of things that were under their control. So I think the very most important takeaway from this step is that this is really good for pharmacies. It, it's likely to be good for most patients in the fact that they'll be reimbursed predictably at the time of dispensing. So as opposed to a magical equation that no one knew, now when a retail pharmacy in particular who are under siege by some of these larger mail order firms, they will have a much more confident model in terms of what the funds will flow to them, and then they'll be able to make more reliable decisions on what to charge patients at the counter. So there's, there's, there's the idea of what it costs the pharmaceutical company to make the drug. Is that going to be the benchmark and then allow them a certain level of return on that? And does that really cover all the research and development costs that bring us these new amazing treatments? Yeah, you know, that's, you know, predictions are dangerous, particularly those about the future guy. That's our Yogi Berra quote. So it, it, the supply chain of pharmaceuticals is amazingly complex. And even if Jamie asked me, I don't think I'd be able to explain it on the radio today. But there are the folks who make the drugs who are under a lot of pressure. And then we saw, of course, that the middleman or middlemen and women in between the manufacturer and actually my patients taking their drugs uh, were not able to really uh, be transparent in terms of what the folks knew. So the drug companies were taking this, this uh, scrutiny, and in many cases, the funds were not flowing to the drug companies, but to these middlemen. So I think what we will see is a little more attention to what we're now calling net prices, the actual price, the money that flows to the drug companies, not these crazy list prices that people always talk about, that like when you buy a car, people don't pay the sticker price very often. So I think, as I said, a step forward to transparency. Uh, we're still working hard, as you know, uh, to lower out-of-pocket costs for drugs through this mechanism and several others, such as value-based insurance design. Mark, could some drugs go up, though, because of this new model? Yeah, absolutely, because imagine... Imagine, Lloyd, that you have people setting prices based on things that you don't even know, such as uh, these volume-based rebates. So if there is a high volume-based rebate, then, of course, the price should go down uh, under these situations. In the opposite, there uh, have been, I would imagine, some mistakes made by these pricing mechanisms where uh, people are actually paying less than they should. I'm pretty confident, as the, the leaders of CVS said on their call yesterday, that net-net, I would be very, very surprised, Lloyd, if this was uh, more patients paying more than paying less, which is why I do think this is an important step forward. But we still have a lot of work to do. The program starts in 2025. How did we get here where, where CVS wants to make a change? Was someone forcing them? Was, uh, you know, how did yeah, we get I, here? And are, yeah. if they're competitive leaders, Mark, will we see other pharmacies falling behind, yeah, falling into line with them? Yeah, both good questions. I think there is a, a lemming phenomenon in this industry. 
And uh, it's not like CVS is the first to do this, Guy, as you pointed out. We have uh, Cost Plus and some, several other smaller uh, PBMs and pharmacy chains doing this too. I think that the time has come, and, and often there are some models that worked previously. I think with the current scrutiny from the industry as well as the attention being paid for and likely reforms on the PBMs uh, coming from Congress, this is one of the things that we're looking for, a lot more transparency and the ability for folks like us who are interested to see where the money is actually flowing. Yeah, you know, the cost of these new anti-obesity uh, medications, I'm sure, too, driving up the conversations. So I would love, Lloyd, I think about this every single day. I don't think we have uh, a lot of time. My, my preference has always been that uh, when you have high-value services, uh, I leave the, the actual net price to the sophisticated men and women in the room, but the burden should not fall on our patients, mm -hmm. right? So um, let the grown-ups decide what the value of the drugs are, but my patient should not have to have a bake sale to afford her insulin, her anti-obesity medicine, mm -hmm. or a drug that's going to treat her cancer. So uh, again, we are talking largely about these net prices between people higher up in the chain. And we all, by having me on and talking about this regularly, we need to keep the pressure on to make sure that these new ideas that come to work lower drug prices for one of the key constituents actually falls all the way to the patients which is how Guy started this conversation, which is why I so enjoy uh, coming on and talking to the three of you. That's why we enjoy you having the incredible capacity to dumb it down to our level, Mark Fender. <laughs> uh, we thank you for your time and for being a leader on this, trying to ally pricing with value so that it all makes some sense to the consumer. Mark, have a great day and thank you. My pleasure. Go Blue. The Greater Regional Chamber had its big uh, Mish Auto Symposium yesterday, a great summit with uh, a lot of leaders in the supplier community and uh, thought leaders in the industry. It was really a great discussion about the future of EVs, the impact of the UAW um, contract. I was pleased to be a participant in it. And a lot of people saying, you know, geez, there is just still so much uncertainty. And even the attempts to clear up the uncertainty create more uncertainty in some cases. And they were citing the Biden administration's uh, Friday uh I wouldn't call it an edict, but a statement saying that uh, if there is Chinese content in EVs, they likely will be disqualified from the $7,500 tax, uh, tax credit and incentives. So it, it begs the question, well, how much content is too much? And, and is it just China or is it going to be maybe Chinese companies that are doing business in Mexico and how we prevent that? Haley Stevens uh, has been uh, a, a big thought leader, both in EVs, but also protecting Michigan jobs as it relates to this contenting issue. And she joins us live this morning, the uh, Congresswoman from the 11th District. Good morning. Good morning. So excited to be on with you. Thank you for that nice introduction. So I, you know, I think there was something like, a, I don't know how many pages of, of regulations surround this. And I, I know it gets pretty complicated do you have an understanding yet about which American-made vehicles may be disqualified under this so-called clarification? I know people are making their their way through the, the, the pages and pages of content. I, I do not think we will see vehicles excluded. I think this is particularly our American-made vehicles. I do think 
that there is a, a reality in which some of our supply chain, uh, particularly in the chemical space, could be impacted uh, as a result of these rulings. I've been working, Guy, with a handful of stakeholders um, uh, throughout this process since we passed the IRA and the Inflation Reduction Act, which gave us the tax credits for EVs and gave the Treasury Department through the IRS the opportunity to do the rulemaking. And we were waiting and we were waiting and we were waiting. And there was a lot of concern that particularly early stage manufacturers in the supply chain particularly in chemicals, would be left out. And, of course, anyone who knows the battery electric vehicle space knows that it's relying on chemicals. And we've got a lot of these manufacturers in Michigan. And what we don't want to see is because they have uh, parts components that help them synthesize materials or uh, chemicals or allow for some of the, the things that they just exclusively at this time can only get from China. Right. And mm -hmm. that, these guys don't want to be relying on China. And we got to have the plan to not be relying on China. But it, this is specific and complex. And, and, and overall, I'm pleased with what I've seen. I'm glad we have the certainty uh, coming out of the Treasury Department and, and particularly for our manufacturers. But we still have work to do. How much time do they have, Congresswoman, to clear up their supply chain issues? Good question. Uh, as soon as they start trying to draw down on, on tax credits, which everyone is eager to do. And I'll tell you all, there's a lot of benefit right now uh, in the marketplace, not just for the consumer, which is exciting, but also for the manufacturer itself. That said, there's also uncertainty. I've heard from manufacturers, not in Michigan, uh, but uh, manufacturers, well, they have a presence in Michigan, but they're looking, they had a plant that they were trying to produce in another state, and they said, you know what, we're pausing it because we don't know what's going to happen with the ruling, and we don't want to get entangled in this, uh, this you know, CCP uh, Chinese mess if we, if we don't qualify for the rules. So, this, this is a toggle for us because we want to strengthen buy American content. We want to strengthen content uh, that, that we produce here in the United States of America and alongside our allies. COVID, major wake up for us uh, in, in terms of over-reliance of our, of our supply chain in, in China and, frankly, a nation that isn't always friendly to us. Representative Stevens, you introduced a bill to expand wireless EV charging programs at the federal level. I know infrastructure is something people are concerned about if they're going to buy an EV. Yes, and we have got to be investing in the infrastructure and utilizing the the opportunities and the channels through the Department of Transportation. And I'm also really calling for a mass coordination throughout the federal government. As someone who worked in, a, in, in the federal government in a different time, a uh, time of crisis during the Great Recession, uh, during the, the, the auto rescue period of General Motors and, and then Chrysler, um, we, we had the, an office that was charged with working across the federal government. We had every cabinet secretary come to the table on many occasions as the GM and Chrysler restructuring was going forward. 
I think today what we need to have is DOT, EPA, Commerce, Department of Defense, and on at the table with a mobility officer that could oversee some of these very critical things that are massive undertakings. The wireless charging is just one example. And that purpose of my bill is to ensure that the Department of Transportation has grants available to communities so that they can in, invest in, in charging and, and seize hold of, of charging opportunities similar to what uh, we created with the infrastructure bill that was signed into law a couple yeah. of years ago. Uh, Haley Stevens, um, I was at this this Mish Auto uh, Symposium yesterday, and I think there's consensus that, you know, we, we see where Europe is going, we see where the market is going, the EV transition has to happen. And we want to make sure that we are on the leading edge, not the trailing edge. But having said that, we've got 4,000 auto dealers that say, hey, uh, the infrastructure is not ready, affordability isn't here yet, this idea of having 50% EVs by 2035 that the Biden administration has laid out as a goal – just really isn't realistic. Is it time for the Biden administration to relax that mandate or that goal uh, and to give the industry more time to, to meet the needs of the consumers who aren't there yet? I do think that the federal government and the private sector, in this case, our automakers, need to be in rigorous conversation around consumer needs. We certainly met a major charge of this, pun intended, I guess, of this uh, uh, automotive revolution with providing the tax incentives. I've had people in the dealer space say we need more tax incentives. I think we also need more communication. But what about more time? Should we have pushed that goal out further and ask that of the Biden administration? Will you ask them for that? I think that is up to the automakers. They, Mary Barra, right, from GM, met with, with the Michigan delegation in 2019 and shared this goal. They're the ones that are changing your production lines, and we are working alongside them. And if, if the folks need to switch course, they need to come to us, and they need to tell us that, and the folks being the automakers themselves. Well, they have. I and, mean, they've put Lake Orion on pause. They've stretched out the introduction of the new uh, pickup by a year. I mean, they're already doing that, shrinking the battery plant in, in, in Marshall. Because a lot of people think that this is the Biden administration forcing rules out on people. This came from the automakers. They asked for this. They told us that they have a net zero goal and this is what they want to do. And a gun so wasn't in, to their head? What's this? And a gun wasn't to their head from a regulatory standpoint? Guy, I'm sharing with you a meeting that I had with an automotive executive. You know, you can have them. I mean, they will tell you this has been their goal. Ford brought me over to a reception and said, here's the new Mach-E. Everyone's going to love it. You know, no no one's putting a gun to anyone's head, guy. Certainly not uh, in in this. there There were some folks yesterday at this summit that feel otherwise, that this is more of a mandate rather uh, than a goal, and then it's being driven more from Washington. But you're right. I mean, we have certainly heard the automakers embrace this. I guess my question is, is politically, whether they have an alternative. Not embrace, Guy. They have been driving this. Please, okay. you know, go back and read the articles. This has been coming from the automakers. They asked for the IRA. They worked in coordination with the Congress. And you are spot on that the Biden administration absolutely needs to be talking to the automakers. If there is an issue with the consumers, if there is an issue with people 
with heavy equipment, which is an automobile, feeling insecure about right. buying it. We need to talk to them about it. And certainly understanding it's inflationary times. We should be working together. Well, and I, I, I feel for time. I, and I know you'll be a leader in that conversation because I know you listen to your dealers, you listen to the automakers here, and, and you can advocate for them. And I appreciate you, you coming on. And I, listening to the dealers, and I told the administration to listen to the dealers, too. Okay. <laughs> Haley Stevens, it's a pleasure. Thanks for being on with us. Thank you. And also advocating on behalf of those that are, you know, saying, hey, I've got no option other than to deal with China on this, but I'm working my tail off to, to break that. Exactly. Right. I mean, 2024, uh, EVs can't be made with battery components from a foreign entity. 2025 kicks in for materials using batteries. So, I mean, that's right. pretty quick. And I, 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 I admire the fact that she's going to advocate for those folks not to be punished for something they have no control over and are trying to resolve. Mm-hmm. It is uh, 746 on News Talk 760. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about the this idea of the NCAA setting up an elite league where the players will be essentially pros. That's uh, at 749. Meantime, you're heating your home. You're going to get that heating bill for December. And you know our eyes are going to pop because they do every December. The question is, are they going to pop more because all of a sudden our, our heating system isn't working the way it should? That is one of the big warning signs that your furnace probably needs attention, those higher utility bills. Maybe it's banging noises, squeaking coming out of the basement. If it needs frequent repairs, if there is short cycling where it's on and off and then on again, really inefficient cycling. If you've got any of those issues, if you've got red lights flashing when you hear these things, it's time to call CNC Heating and Air Conditioning. Why? Because for 75 years, they have been the best at uh, as a family business delivering customer service to the people that they serve here in Southeast Michigan. And it's why they're referred by the Inside Outside guys. Right now, too, a Carrier has a cool cash savings program that will help you save money on a new Carrier furnace. It starts with an easy phone call, 800-MY-FURNACE, or 800-693-8762. You're going to get a free 21-point comfort survey. It will tell you everything you need to know about what your status is with your current furnace and whether you need a new one. And if you find out that you do, you can get installation of that new carrier heating and cooling system tomorrow. That's how good CNC is. Visit cncheat.com. That's cncheat.com. Carrier, turn to the experts. In a sharp break from his organization's past, the NCAA president, Charlie Baker, called for a series of changes paving the way for the top money-making schools to break away and form a division that would more closely resemble professional sports. Steve Courtney, WJR senior sports analyst, is with us now. And, man, this is a this is a change, Steve. Yeah, Jane, good morning to you, the group. Hello again, everyone. Uh, as it appears, the NCAA is getting off the sideline and uh, coming up with ideas to raise revenue for student-athletes. I certainly hope nobody drove off the road when I said that. Now, here's the thing. Uh, this conversation brought to you by the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling, a preferred partner of the Inside Outside Guys, kicked off another $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Request your windows, roofing, and siding quote today. Log into windowsroofingsiding.com to enter performance remodeling sweepstakes. All right, here's what we know. Uh, as you alluded to, Jane, NCAA President Charlie Baker unveiled a proposal yesterday uh, that would alter the landscape of college sports. Now, in a letter to Division One schools, 
uh, President Baker outlined the key aspects of and reasoning for a proposed shift in governance that would effectively enable big money athletic departments to directly compensate athletes by allowing each to create an enhanced educational trust fund for them. More on that in just a bit and the dollars involved. The proposal would also allow these same schools, likely the upper echelon, formerly known as the Power Five conferences of the football subdivision series, uh, to branch off and make their own rules surrounding roster size, transfers, and name, image, and likeness, among other issues. Now, there is still a whole bunch to be learned, and maybe we will later today. President Baker is expected to speak in more detail about the proposal during a public appearance today in Las Vegas. Now, the fact of the matter is he has privately floated the idea to college sports leaders during the past several weeks. Some very high-profile ADs, such as Ohio State's Gene Smith, showed public support for the idea yesterday. Now, the NCAA is opening the door for big-money schools to uh, branch off from everyone else and directly pay their athletes. Simply proposing this in the first place is quite radical uh, for an organization that has clung to the idea of amateurism for decades now. Now let's just cut to the chase. How much money are we talking about? Uh, Baker wrote in this letter that any school in this rich school subdivision should be required to invest at least $30,000 per year into an enhanced educational trust fund for at least half of the institution's eligible student athletes. Keep in mind, this is to be done within the framework of Title IX. Now, assuming about 525 athletes per school, which is the average in the Southeastern Conference, that works out to a minimum of about $7.88 million per year, which for you know, the Power 5 schools, soon to be Power 3, uh, that is a drop in the bucket. Uh, this is one part of the proposal, however, that uh, there are still many details to be worked out. Uh, and it is worth noting here that while Baker appears to be setting the floor for how much money must be invested, his proposal says absolutely nothing about a ceiling. So uh, by saying that, folks, uh, the sky's the limit. Because, again, there is no barometer. Right. So where's the competitive fairness in this? Michigan makes $95 million or more in revenue off their sports than what Purdue was. They've got deeper pockets. They can pay their athletes more. What does that do to the competitive landscape in the Big Ten? Well, here's the deal on that guy. Uh, By essentially dragging their feet on issues like NIL and uh, athlete pay, and we all know the NCAA has done just that. What they did was invite outside entities like, hello, Congress and the courts to get involved in this business. Now, this proposal appears to be, at least in part, an attempt to ward off some of those outside efforts and perhaps... Antitrust. Yeah, diffuse some of the uh, tension that's been brewing in Division I between, as you alluded to, Guy, and it's been a bone of contention for a while, the haves and the have-nots. Well, also, because of NIL, since July 2021, all this money is coming in, but just for, like, football and basketball players in the, on the men's side. If you bring it in-house, then it's all under Title IX, and female athletes might be getting more, which I like. 
Well, and uh, that is one of the positives here because uh, we don't have time because I've just been given the 30-second warning. Um, (laughs) Like you ever heated that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just wonderful. Um, But you're right, Jamie. uh, This new proposal uh, I think would go a long way in ensuring uh, that female athletes would get their share of the pie. The other thing, and just going forward, they call it an educational trust that that would be set aside. Does that mean that it can only be used to defray costs of their education? They already get scholarships. I know. So what is this education trust? Are there... Is, is there limits to what this money can be paid for, or is mom going to be driving a new Escalade? We'll, <laughs> we'll have to wait and see yeah. what he says later today. Yeah, we will uh, keep our antenna up. Steve, thanks very much. All right, have a great day, you guys. You too. Steve Courtney, WJR Senior Sports Analyst. We'll be back. Welcome to Wednesday as we get you over the hump. Big day tomorrow here on WJR. We've got uh, the Say Detroit uh, Radiothon with Mitch Album, and he's going to be on in a few minutes uh, at the end of this hour with us uh, to tell us about the important work that his charity is doing, and we look forward to that. Um, the market's all in the green right now. Looks like a good day on Wall Street, or at least starting out that way. Job openings uh Slid to eight point seven million. We, you know, we saw this situation where you had double the job openings that you did unemployed workers. Well, that's now closing, and that's a good thing in the fight against inflation. Uh, you don't want to see the, the labor market tightening. Not normally a good thing, but in this case, it is. Governor Gretchen Whitmer yesterday signed an edict. This is nothing that went through the legislature, but the uh, the this eight thousand vehicle fleet for the state of Michigan is going to be all electric by. It, for the smaller light-duty vehicles by 2033, so just 10 years, actually less than 10 years, mm-hmm. nine years, to get to that goal. They have three EVs right now. Got a little, little ways to go. Just, you know, just a little bit. 7,997 vehicles <laughs> short. Um, but th- they're going to do it. I think it's it's a good message to send to the automotive community that, hey, we're going to buy the vehicles that you're going to be producing in the future, and we're going to make that commitment, and it's why we want you to build them here, components, everything here. Um, And that's really the play that she's trying to make. I'm sure there's a political calculation here as well to folks on the left that are very hardcore uh, on the climate change things. But are you condemning the Michigan vehicle fleet to be problem-plagued? Based on our discussion yesterday with Consumer Reports, this is 79% more problems with EVs than ICE engines. Even though they're supposedly now in nine years. Exactly. So the Will question they is, have as many problems? Right. Probably not. But well, well, that's what the consumer so. reports guy said. That when new things come out, this always happens, and Gen two, Gen three, exactly. have fewer problems. So that's the question. How you know how quickly you're going to do this? And in, in, in you know, uh, I, I'm sure they're going to say, well, we we, we have a, a big horizon. We need to start buying them now because we expect these vehicles to last a while. Well, okay, but. They're not there in terms of affordability yet. No. And if they're not bought before the time the governor leaves office, then could the next governor, whoever that may be, come in and say, well, we want to change this. Yeah. And does it make yeah. sense for the state worker up in the UP that may be driving 400 miles a day mm-hmm. uh, to get from one end of the peninsula to the other or to get down to where they need to go? And yeah, I, There's just a lot of questions to it. I, I think it's, again, well-intentioned. It's all in the doing. Uh, when it goes through appropriations, I, I just I think it's interesting she did this without the Senate Fiscal Agency, without any independent uh, review saying, does this really make sense now? 
you know, maybe two, three years from now, to Jamie's point, when we've got Gen 2 out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we're still waiting on Gen 1 on, on the Equinox and a lot of the Escape and a lot of those affordable, more affordable EVs. Um, Jennifer Crumbly making a plea to the court. Yes, uh, her attorneys have filed a pair of motions with the court regarding evidence in the involuntary manslaughter case against her. The motions pertain to evidence Ethan Crumbly killed and mutilated birds and evidence of a second affair by Jennifer Crumbly. The court had previously said it would hold off on ruling about the admissibility of evidence about the bird's head. In a new motion, Crumbly's attorney says more has been revealed in discovery about the circumstances surrounding that situation. However, attorney Shannon Smith argues that the details would be too prejudicial to her client and that there is no evidence either parent knew about the birds anyway. And, and, and you know, it probably would be prejudicial. We're going to talk more about this with uh, Marie Osborne coming up in a few minutes. Uh, meantime, uh, some uh, this this thing about the NCAA, and I'd love to, if we've got time maybe for a couple of texts, one 800 from our listeners. This idea of setting up a separate league under the NCAA un- umbrella that would essentially be a pro league. Yeah, like making student athletes basically <laughs> professional players. The NCAA president, Charlie Baker, sent a letter to Division One members proposing this creation of this subdivision where schools would be required to provide significantly greater compensation for their athletes than the current association rules allow. Under this plan, within the framework of Title IX, uh, schools in this new group would have to invest at least $30,000 per year in an enhanced educational trust for at least half of the institution's eligible stu- student athletes. Now, the, the term trust fascinates That's me. interesting. They're because not just Im- paying them a check. Right. So it's going into a trust that implies that there's going to be limitations on how they can spend it or that a trustee will oversee it, which makes sense, Could right? Be a good if- thing. Could be a good thing with financial literacy of these young people. Some of these young athletes. And there should be, actually, you know what, Lloyd? There should be an educational component to this. If you've got something deposited, you need to go through a financial literacy course so that you can better manage it in Mm -hmm. your own behalf. And also maybe have some help. Mm-hmm. But that's in interesting that because they're already there on scholarship, you would think. So educational trust for what? Exactly. Yeah. What, but what are, the idea that these, these universities are making money off of these athletes, that they would get paid, that's at the crux of it. If I want to watch pro basketball, I'll watch the NBA. Well, it's already kind of there. We're in the free agency period of college right now where right. all these quarterbacks are just going into the portal and they can play next year. Right. I um, well, I don't know what you think about this. Does it kind of spoil the college athletic mystique that these are amateurs playing for the old alma mater and and for the romance of, of supporting their school? I think that it kind was of lost in 2021 it? when the <laughs> NIL passed. I know, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it because mm-hmm. I, mean, I agree. Me, it's, it's like a free-for-all. It feels icky kind of well, in, it also, at times. Yeah. Doesn't it devalue the scholarship that most kids – that aren't athletically gifted would kill for? Yeah. I mean, some would say they're already getting paid because they're getting a free college college education. education, Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I I don't know that they value it. But others like Jim Harbaugh would say universities are making a ton of money. These athletes deserve it. He's been really hot on that uh, kind of case the past few weeks. Uh, This also says that the money will be to help continue educational pursuits during the summer or after their careers, maybe meaning, I don't know if that's professional careers or college careers. Um, so, Well, yeah, some of them stay one year. So the yeah. money is conditional then to some extent. 
it, there. that there are limits to where it can be spent. Um, we, we should point out that it, the NCAA didn't do this in a vacuum. There are two NLRB complaints, National Labor Relations Board complaints, and I think a couple of antitrust suits out there. So they, they're feeling under pressure to take some kind of action. And there already are making the haves and have-nots with the SEC and Big Ten kind of taking all the teams from all these other conferences. So it's not like this is True. step one of just creating the the haves and have-nots. But for our friends at Oakland University or other yeah. schools, mm-hmm. how, 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 how much bigger are the haves now and how much poorer are the have-nots? Well... I'm, yeah, I mean, Ohio State, for example, reported $252 million bucks in revenue last year. The neighbor, Ohio University, $29 million. So some schools have a lot of money to give out, and some schools do not. That's, that, that is writ large, exactly. Because mm-hmm. then, if, if, because it's the schools that are going to fund this, right? And mm-hmm. they think it's going to be about $9 million to pay half your athletes thirty grand a year. Um, but not. but then the argument is these schools have it. They're paying Texas A and M fired football coach Jimbo Fisher seventy five million bucks. But why half their students? Is there a reason for that? Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a little bit. Why pregnant. not all? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, that's kind of a, that's uh, more than a little crazy. Uh, we had a great conversation with the uh, we mentioned Oakland University with the president of Oakland University, uh, Dr. Ora Hirsch Peskovitz. Um, she laid out four what she considers really important principles about speech on campus. It's in the Detroit News. Um, we invite you to read that, but also listen to our conversation where they're at thegreatvoice.com. You can stream all of our interviews there. You can stream the whole show if you like. Uh, but that it, it a really important conversation because she thinks that there has really been a lack of leadership on the part of higher education. Mm-hmm. And she wants to fill that void and say, you know, some of the speech is going to be offensive, but where it crosses into harassing speech, that's where we need to draw the line. And she admits it's going to be a pretty blurry line when we start yeah. this. Um, when we come back, we'll be checking in with Marie Osborne, this new, uh, the Oxford shooter's mother, requesting that some evidence be kept off the table as she is being tried. We'll get into that with Marie Osborne at 819 here on News Talk 760 WJR. Come this Friday, the Oxford shooter will learn his fate. And we know that the judge in that case has opened the door uh, after the so-called Miller hearing to to make sure that he can face life without parole in prison. Meantime, his mother is trying to restrict what can be brought into court for her trial on involuntary manslaughter charges. Uh, WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne joining us live with the latest on that plea. Good morning, Marie. Everyone, trials for Jennifer Crumley and her husband James are set to begin in January. That's why we're seeing all of this right now. She has asked a judge to rule on whether or not the jury, in her case, should hear that her son Ethan tortured baby birds before his shooting rampage at the high school that claimed four student lives. Crumley's attorney argues that the details are extremely disgusting, sickening, and appalling and could be used against her unfairly. Ethan Crumley videotaped himself torturing and killing these birds. He hid the head of one bird under his bed for months and then brought it to school shortly before the killings. The Crumleys are the first parents in the country to be charged in a mass school shooting. They face involuntary manslaughter charges. They're accused of ignoring their son's mental health problems and instead buying him a gun. 
instead of getting him help, the same gun that he used in that shooting two years ago. The prosecution has suggested that Crumbly's parenting skills and lifestyle will paint a picture of irresponsible parenting. They have presented evidence of the couple having affairs, heavy drinking, pot smoking, the defense arguing that this is irrelevant to the case and would inflame the jury. The prosecutors argue that Crumley's could have prevented this shooting by telling the high school officials that their son had a gun. Both of them go uh, for separate trials, but uh, separate juries, trials at the same time. That starts on January 23rd. Ethan Crumley will be in court on Friday for sentencing. He faces life in prison without the possibility of parole. Do we, I can understand why they'd be fearful of this being prejudicial, but it also goes to the, the, this narrative that Ethan himself has placed out there in talking to therapists and through his pre-sentencing stuff, which is he repeatedly asked for help. And this could uh, certainly go to describing how badly he needed it. Yeah, that goes right to the core of the case, right? Because the parents are arguing, we didn't know this, so how could we possibly have prevented or done anything to try to prevent this shooting? We didn't know this was happening. So that goes right to the core here. So that's why um, Jennifer Crumley is really working hard with her attorneys to keep this type of evidence out of the trial. Now, uh, there has been a ruling that the uh, evidence of affairs will be kept out of the trial. Um, the judge ruled on that, saying that that didn't have bearing on what was happening here. But a lot of this other stuff will be allowed uh, for the trial, and we'll see how they rule on this particular item. And Marie, um, the parents have been separated. Their cases have been separated. Yeah. So this is Jennifer mm -hmm. Crumbly and her lawyers exclusively. Right, exactly. Now, the, uh, it'll be separate trials, uh, separate juries, but at the, the uh, trials will take place at the same time. Also, keep in mind, you know, it was only a month or two ago that we learned about um, this evidence that was discovered uh, in the form of a person in Florida that provided some kind of detail to this right. trial we we to this case we don't know what was said or what type of evidence it is but apparently this was very important and that's when the parents asked to have their trials separate not together but presumably so, it's a family member with yeah. maybe putting forth what they believe was evidence of neglect and it, exactly. when that is entered into evidence maybe other instances of of neglect or failure to act uh, in the presence of of maybe some emotional problems that were illustrated in the in the in the kid, um, doesn't then that make the the bird torture mm -hmm. then valid because it shows just how far astray the child had gone because of the original neglect and how obtuse the parents were in realizing that something was wrong with their child exactly, um, you know and in the case of this witness. Um, it may be neglect or it may be the the inaction of the parents that's what that's exactly correct this person may provide some vital information on on that point either way uh marie this is going to be huge uh people watching uh, oh. this trial you know between you know with Absolutely. the parents that they're going to be looking at this and this may set precedent yeah. across the country Oh. Absolutely, it's going to uh, set precedents around the country. This will be a global, this will be watched globally because, again, no parent has ever been um, uh, charged in a school shooting 
a lot of people are watching this and how many have how many times have all of us said and talking the parent that that's criminal those parents acted in a criminal way well now these people are actually facing those charges well the the the, the, the real misconduct was the fact when presented with these drawings mm-hmm. that no one ever said oh we do have a gun in the home we we should right. go check and mm-hmm. see if it's secured mm-hmm. and we'll also hear evidence as to whether or not it truly was secured yeah. mm-hmm. and and, and to, uh, to that point we understand that one of the first things that James Crumley did after hearing about this shooting, there's evidence to this, the first thing he did was to rush home to see where the gun was. Mm-hmm. So that goes right to that point that they knew that that, that could be a problem. Right. All right, Marie, uh, we will await. Uh, we, of course, yeah. we'll be covering uh, the sentencing on Friday, and then we'll be giving you a preview as to what will go into the judge's consideration for an appropriate sentence for the Oxford shooter. Marie, thanks so much. Exactly. Thanks, guys. Do you guys reuse passwords? <clears throat> I try not to. Yeah. Convenience. Convenience and, yeah. and I mean, just because otherwise your brain is constantly cluttered mm-hmm. now. Thank goodness my laptop remembers a lot of them for me and I can now use a fingerprint. And my, yeah, and that's how mine is too. It's, and on my phones, you know, as but well. This hack at 23andMe... Uh, all of this, the the, the 14,000 accounts that were hacked were hacked because, and their forensic analysis has determined this, because someone reused a password on multiple sites. And as other sites were compromised, they were able to coalesce all of these passwords and then go into the 23andMe. And, I mean, it was a treasure trove. So 14,000 count, accounts um, were compromised but that exposed the information for 6.9 million people because on 23andMe, it's a little bit like Facebook, but we're all genetically connected because that's how we chart our relatives, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, I mean, it raises the prospects. And they've got now social security numbers. They even, I think, kind of have your, if they wanted it, your 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 uh, DNA blueprint. Your genetic yeah. makeup. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm know. worried that, that perhaps a clone may show up. Oh, yeah. may show up here one AI day. I and hope, all that stuff. I, I hope mean, you guys can identify him when he does. Uh, <laughs> he won't be as smart as the eyes will the be naked. Yeah, yeah. He, won't, he won't be as testy as when we I ask am. a question. He'll be like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> What's wrong with God? <laughs> right, he knows everything. <laughs> but seriously, oh. how are you supposed to remember all your passwords? Every site you go to, every it's so hard. Yeah, and it's there are some. So there are some where there's no financial dealings. Like you know, for instance, your bank passwords. Absolutely, you've got to have very complicated, yes. unique passwords. But on other stuff, like and you would think, I think of Twenty Three and Me as kind of a benign website. Right. Well, it turns out it's not. Oh man, okay. you know, it's it's not. It's one where you might say, well, yeah, I can reuse this just this one. So I went. To, just by the way, and you can do this on on your cell phone as well. And I have an iPhone. Uh, when you go to the password section. It has a, a little spot there that says security recommendations. It already knows how many passwords you've reused and where you've reused them. And it will tell you, hey, dummy. Uh, yeah. And I look down, I it says, secure, I'm not going to tell you how many security risks I have, but it's in the triple digits. Oh, God. You got to check it. it, it this, this is a great wake-up call uh, yes. with 23andMe that reusing them can have not only consequences for you, but people you've never met because you may share some genetics. My fourth and fifth cousins several times removed <laughs> might might have been compromised. I And I've got no notice that I'm among the 14,000. Yeah. But it certainly 
raises the, the prospect that, boy, because we're all interconnected on some of these websites, mm-hmm. you're not just hurting yourself. You're hurting others. When we come back, going to be checking in with the skipper headed to the hall, Jim Leland, next on JR Morning. It's often cited as a truism, nice guys finish last, and it's attributed to Leo DeRocher, who was not a very nice guy. But that truism kind of gets blown apart, Jamie, when we're talking about the man that's headed to the hall. A nice guy is headed to the hall. Jim Leland is one of my favorite people, and that's not just because I'm from Pittsburgh. I interviewed him professionally working here when he worked for the Tigers, and he still works for the Tigers, and now he's heading to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Skipper, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Great to be on with you guys. Uh, I mean, just give us your initial reaction to getting this call. There's a picture um, going all over social media, you on the phone and your wife there. Yeah, well, it was, you know, it was, I was, I didn't think it was going to happen because they told me that it was that window between 6.30 and 7.15. So it it got to be about 10 or 7, actually about quarter to 7. I said, well, this is not going to happen because they'd have called by now. And, and uh, my son and my wife and my daughter kept saying, well, there's a reason there's a window. You never know. But I, I just went up and laid down for a couple minutes to kind of get my thoughts together. And uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say I was pouting, but I was I was still thinking about everything, a million things going through my head. And and uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, my son and my wife and my daughter come up the steps and just as they did, the phone rang. So it was unbelievable. I just I, could, I actually couldn't believe it. So put put your put yourself in the shoes of young Jim Leland as he was uh, coming into the system, the farm system as a young man and where you are now. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I tell everybody, you know, I signed with the Tigers as a, as a youngster in, in 1963, in the fall of 63, my first spring training in 64. And I was in the minor leagues 18 straight years with the Tigers uh, as a player and a manager, 11 as a manager. But, uh, you know, when you sign with somebody in 1963 and you don't get there till 2006, that's a long time to wait. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, Coach, you are so beloved here in, in the city of Detroit and the, the, by the, the players and, and the people here. Um, do I, I know you wish you could have brought a, a World Series here to the city of Detroit, don't you? Oh, there's no question about that. That's, you know, that's one of my biggest regrets because we had a chance. You know, I felt that in, in both cases that we were just as good for sure or maybe the better team and we didn't win. So it was quite a disappointment, but uh, it is what it is. You know, the, the, that's the way this game is. There's wins and there's losses. There's, uh, you know, great celebrations and there's heartbreaks. So that's just the way it goes. And uh, I, But I do certainly regret that. I would have, you know, we shared some great moments up there and, and, and uh, we just fell short of probably sharing the greatest one. When you got the call, sort of what went through your mind? Did anecdotes flash through your head? I mean, so many people are posting their Jim Leland stories. I have a couple with your feet on the desk and the cigarette smoke going. <laughs> uh, sort of what anecdotes did come to mind for you? Well, you just had a flashback of this whole your whole career, basically. You know, minor leagues, over with the White Sox, getting your first opportunity with the Pirates, winning the World Series in Florida. You know, I had a misstep in Colorado. I didn't do a good job. And then, uh, you know, scouting for the Cardinals for six years. And, and, and all of a sudden, Dave calls me. And, and uh, you know, we got together and I ended up getting a Tiger job. I mean, all those things slash through your head. It, 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 it's like you're going a, a mile a minute, you know. And it really hasn't settled down just yet. But hopefully things are going to settle down a little bit now. 
Jim, when you started in this league in 1963, the average salary was twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> now that I, I think the, you know the, the shoestring contract gets you more than that. <laughs> um, to talk to me about how you had to evolve in this uh, hyper financial, ego fueled locker room and clubhouse, and and how you had to evolve to, to manage those egos with all the money that was flowing. Well, you know, they're, they're young people that obviously make a lot of money, but they're great guys. You know, they come to work in a, you know, a nice T-shirt or something, a pair of jeans. They're young people, and, you know, they're making a lot of money, but they're they're great guys. I And I don't think – I've always believed that, you know, when you're a good guy, and those players are good guys. When you're a good guy, it doesn't matter whether you're making 6000 or $6 million. Uh, you are what you are, and uh, you know your lifestyle changes a little bit. You probably got a nicer house, a nicer car, all that goes with it, I guess. But at the same time, they they don't change. You know, they're 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 really good guys, and uh, I'm very fortunate to have been able to manage those guys all my career, including the minor league guys that never made it. I got a lot of texts from those guys, those kids that played for me in the minor sure. leagues that never made it. So, it, you know, it, it's it's great. Uh, Coach, 700 games you won with the Tigers, uh, 851 games with the Pirates, and a World Series, uh, 97 with the Florida Marlins. You have been successful in, in many areas, on many teams. Do you know at this time, has it been a determination on uh, what logo is going to go on that plaque in Cooperstown? Well, that, that's the question that's been the most popular question, and I've answered it the same way because it's the way it is right now. I, uh, the Hall of Fame ends up making that decision for you. Uh, so you don't really, uh, you don't really have a choice if they say this is what we want you to do, but you, you do have conversation with them about it. But, and the way I feel right now, and I hope everybody would understand this, you know, I, when you manage four different franchises, you have to be careful. It's hard to, you know, obviously Detroit was huge. We won the, uh, World Series in Florida. You know, the Pittsburgh Pirates gave me my first opportunity. I live in Pittsburgh. I work for Detroit. So, Right now, I think we're leaning towards probably no logos like Tony LaRusso did because he managed Oakland and he managed St. Louis. Mm. Uh, so we're not really sure about that. Um, but we're going to have further discussions with that. But no decision has been made at this time. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to disrespect any one of the franchises that I managed. Uh, Jim, we ran a soundbite from you. You were on MLB Tonight, and you said something along the lines of, if you're honest with a player, you lose him for 24 hours. If you're dishonest, you lose him forever. And I, well, I think that's poignant. I just think it's uh, – I, I think I use the word mislead. You know, it's hard to, to you know, to break hearts sometimes, as, you know, when you're having issues with players and everything. But I think if you in any way mislead a player, I think you probably lose him forever. But if you look him in the eye and tell him exactly the way it is and the truth, then you probably lose him for 24 hours. And, uh, you know, after 24 hours, it's all over with. You were honest with him. He knows that, might not like it, but he knows you were honest with him. But if you misled him in any way, you probably lost him forever. Well, that proves the minor league guys texting you because a lot of times you were saying you didn't make the team, but they were texting you they're proud of you now. Yeah, I mean, like I said, they you know they never made it to the big leagues, so you, you break a lot of hearts. I mean, I released a lot of young players yeah. during my time. It's just your job in the minor leagues, and I mean, I've always said it was more difficult for me to release some kid that was nineteen, twenty years old that you broke his heart. He knew he was never gonna get get his dream. It wasn't gonna come true, 
It was harder to do that than it was to release a veteran player to major league level that had a lot of success, made a lot of money, might have been an MVP. It was actually harder sure. to talk to those minor league guys than it was some of the major league guys. Because you've been that guy. No, I was. I I got released, and it broke my heart. But fortunately, I was able to hang on and, and get a job managing the minor leagues. And, and, and of course, now the rest is history. Who, who's the coolest person that reached out to you so far? Oh boy, let's see. I I, I don't really know. I I I I don't know. I wouldn't begin to know. I had like almost 300 texts so i had to <laughs> i had and i don't text too fast i'm one of those ones. <laughs> you're old school i'm old school it took me a long time i don't know i mean i've you know i've heard from verlander and biggie's had stuff out there and i've, I've heard from but you know once again I, I i don't know that i could pick one guy out doug Drabeck just texted me this morning i want to Cy young for me here in pittsburgh so it's just hard to pinpoint you know, I, I got a beautiful text from Chris Illich, which, which, and I got a beautiful text from the owner of the Marlins and the, and the Pirates. So, so, I mean, it's just hard to, to pick out one. Jim, when you, uh, there's a lot of people that listen to this program who are in the business community who manage people every day. They don't manage a ball club or athletes, but they manage people. What's the most important thing you've learned about managing people that, that you could share with our audience? Well, I think that you have to understand that everybody has a position. And, um, I had a boss when I was at Detroit, and then I was kind of the boss on the field. And, and, and I think the biggest thing is that you have to find out what makes each one of your employees tick and how you're going to get the best out of them. And it's not the same for everybody. Somebody you might have to push a little harder. Somebody you might have to back off. Most of them you have to instill a lot of confidence because I think even as good as some of these players are, there is a slight bit of insecurity yet. Are they really good enough? Can I? Uh, I made it, but can I stay here? Can I do well here? I think you have to you have to communicate uh, each and every day as much as you possibly can. I know the corporate world's a little different, but in, in baseball, I try to communicate each and every single day with all my players in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, a, a minute conversation or a thirty-second uh, you know conversation, whatever it may be, or a half-hour conversation, but. You got to find out what makes them tick, what what makes them work, and how you're going to get the best out of them. Yeah, and that's true whether you're managing a ball club or a McDonald's or right. a bank. Absolutely. You know, well, he pushed the right he pushed the right buttons because he's the 23rd manager in the hall. <laughs> I appreciate that. We yeah, nice guy. Here's the headline: Nice guy finishes first. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jim Leland, thank you so much. Congratulations. Detroit loves you. And, well, uh, I appreciate that very much, and uh, I love them, too. I think they know that. Yeah, we do. Thanks so much. Congratulations. You got it. Thanks. All right. Jim Leland, the newest member of the Hall of Fame, and won't that be an induction ceremony? I can't wait for that speech. That's, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, it's good. You, you got a hanky handy? He's, <laughs> yeah. You know he's going to need he one. He cries yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm he a wears crier. his heart on his sleeve. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It's going to be big-time sniffles uh, when we come back. Our good friend Mitch Albom on the day before his biggest day of the year. Piece of sad news uh, from Hollywood. Norman Lear, the guy that really kind of uh, reinvented the sitcom, died at 101 years old. Uh, I just got that on my phone. He's interesting, interesting. That guy was amazing, man. Yeah, he was an interesting guy and still writing. He was yes. still working uh, and, and, uh, and, and writing for others. 
Uh, you know what? There's a there's a, there's a writer in this building that we know pretty well, uh, who's been a busy guy, and uh, tomorrow's a very big day for him. Uh, Mitch Album will uh, host his 12th annual Say Detroit Radiothon from the Somerset Collection in Troy, and it'll be our first together as a team uh, that will be uh, visiting him down there. And Mitch joins us this morning. Hi, Mitch. Good morning, guy. You've uh, you, I I hope that you are taking a, a vow of silence today to to save your voice for tomorrow. <laughs> Yes, we have all the remedies, the tea with the honey and the cough drops and all that. But um, I've done it sick. I've I've done it horse. It doesn't matter. We'll do 15 hours starting from 6 a.m. till 9 p.m. And hopefully we'll raise a lot of money to help needy Detroiters at this time of year. If you're under a rock and you don't know what, say, Detroit does, where does the money go? What do you guys do? Well, if you're under a rock, first you should come out from under the rock. <laughs> not a healthy place Beautiful. to live. But, yeah. uh, so State Detroit has now been around, uh, gosh, we're heading towards 20 years. I think we're 17, 18 years old. Um, we have about nine separate charitable operations underneath the umbrella, starting from children five days old all the way up to senior citizens. We run the State Detroit uh, Play Center up at Lipke Park, which takes care of like 300 kids a day for after school and, and learning programs. We have the Say Detroit Family Medical Clinic, the first clinic in the country for homeless children, now takes care of entire families. We have our bicycle factory where we uh, employ uh, a number of people in the area to build and refurbish bicycles that we then supply to people in need in the city. We've got veterans programs, senior citizens programs, uh, food programs, homeless programs, uh, our Working Homes, Working Families program where we give out houses that mm-hmm. we refurbish to uh, needy families. And if they pay the taxes and utilities for two years, they get the house. And we'll be doing that again tomorrow. So it's a pretty broad spectrum, uh, but let's just say it takes care of everybody in, in need in Detroit. And 100% of the money we raise goes right to the causes. And Mitch, uh, I'm sure you always have a great list of uh uh, dignitaries and entertainers who are participants in the Radiothon every year. Yeah, I, I, this is when I call in every favor from everybody I've ever met. Uh, <laughs> they're getting used to it at this point. Hugh Jackman, Smokey Robinson, Hoda Kotb, uh, Blake Corum is going to join us this year, and a couple of guys from the Michigan team, uh, Dan Campbell and Jared Goff from the Lions, musical acts from Gino Vanelli all the way across the board. Sports stars, movie stars, uh, just, just uh, you know, they're all they all call in to, to give a shout out. But honestly, Lloyd and and, and everybody, uh, the interviews that we have with all those famous people who call in, they're, they're fun and they, you know, mm-hmm. they're they're interesting. But it's the interviews we have with the clients who we who come out there who were formerly homeless who now have a home, formerly addicted who are now straightened out, but kids who didn't have an opportunity who now do. They're the ones who always steal the show. Yeah. You know, they, they're the ones who make people cry and they're the ones who make people give, you know, and mm-hmm. last year we were able to raise one point eight million dollars in a day, which is was unheard of, un, unprecedented. And I, I keep saying that the amazing team that I have who helps us, um, we're setting the bar too high. Because, you know, <laughs> one, of these, one of these years we're going to say, well, we didn't do what we did last year. But even if we don't do what we did last year, it'll still be an amazing amazing injection to help Detroiters. So you, you bring up the, the real-life guests. You've got this charity that's 70, 17 years now in existence. It's not 
the services, it's the lives you touch with the services. So have you heard from people whose lives you've touched maybe a decade, decade and a half ago that say, yeah, you don't know me, but when I was this many years old, you did this, that this program helped me. Have you heard from those people? And can you give me just one really great anecdote that you said, you just go, wow. Um, Well, um, yeah, I could give you a thousand of them, but I know you don't have time for it. I'll tell you one that's sort of a hybrid of that. There's a man named Daryl Woods who was in prison uh, for 29 years uh, for something that he didn't do. And when we were made aware that he was set free, uh, we got in touch with him because we were going to do a program right at the same time after all the George Floyd stuff happened. And we had an idea to create these events where uh, plainclothes police officers, you know, who were not identifiable and former gang members, former incarcerated people, at-risk youth got together to grill food and then ate together. And then only after they ate together did they introduce themselves to one another. They had no idea who they all were to try to foster this, you know, relationship between police and, and citizens at risk and stop making everything so contentious. And he came in and started that program, and it has been one of the most successful things Say Detroit has ever done. It's called wow. Better Together. We have done dozens and dozens of things, and he coordinates all of it. And he stands up at the end and says, all right, let's introduce everybody. Where, where are you? And he starts with the ones who were, you know, well, I just got out of prison, or I'm trying to get my life together. And then he says, and you, sir? And he says, well, I work for the city. Oh, really? What do you do? I'm a police officer. And, you know, half the people at the table want to get up and run, you know, but yeah. but they don't because he lived it, you know, and he was in prison and he he managed to have a forgiving, you know, heart and, and to turn his life around. And he lives it every day. And, and we are proud to call him part of, say, Detroit. Breaking perceptions, decade long perceptions with dialogue, which happens far too seldom. Yeah, it, it does. And, and that's also what 15 hours on the on the radio and on streaming does for people because you know a lot of people don't get to meet people from different walks of life who have turned their lives around and over the course of 15 hours yeah they hear from you know Hugh Jackman and Hoda Kopp and those people but they also get to hear these stories and I think that that's what motivates people to dial the number so um, and by the way you can go we also have some amazing auction items I mean amazing auction I like every year they get better and better this year we actually have a wedding that we can auction off a wedding at wow. uh, one of the Andiamos for 250 people. Wow. You can actually bid on your own wedding, uh, and and you know, and you get the whole nine yards of it. I mean, in addition to you know guitars and trips to New York and all these kinds of things from different celebrities, but um, that you can go to right now and actually bid on it's uh, MitchAlbumRadioThon dot com. And uh, you can check that out. And, of course, tomorrow you come out to Somerset. We didn't say where it was. It's at Somerset North in the Grand Court. And you can uh, come out there as early as 6 a.m. with the mall walkers. Or you can come out during the middle of the day or all the way up to 9 9 p.m. and see what goes on. It's a cool show, you know, a big stage and everything in front of the water fountains. And uh, a lot of the guests are there on site. A lot of the local, you know, celebrities like yourselves and Bernie Smilovitz and, you know, all the all the anchors from the different show, uh, newscasts will be out there. So it's a cool day, and, and um, hopefully we'll do a lot of good. And you can go buy uh, a brown bag popcorn while you're out there as well, can't you? That's right. 
You don't even have to go upstairs. I think we bring it down for you. <laughs> okay, there you go. It's just like DoorDash. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Bitch, we, uh... we, we sell we sell everything. I'm, my, my book is there. We've got them. I'm signing books in the commercial breaks of my new book. And it, it, it doesn't matter. If it's going to raise money for charity, we'll do it. Well, we Great invite class. everybody, come out and join us. Uh, Jamie Lloyd and I will be there at 6.30 a.m. Uh, we get to sleep in by about an hour tomorrow, <laughs> uh, but we're going to be there bright and early and helping you kick it all off. So uh, we look forward to seeing you. We look forward to seeing you guys, too. Thank you for helping us, and thanks everyone who's listening for uh, in advance for helping needy Detroiters at this time of year. All right. Thank you, Mitch. The uh, The website for those auction items are MitchAlbumRadiothon.com. We'll see you tomorrow with Mitch.